A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Hi everybody and welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. I'm Tandy and I'm your host this evening or today whenever you're listening and I'm joined by my good friend Christina and today we have an amazingly special guest. We have got the esteemed Martin Cornell, beer historian, multi-award winning author who's been discovering and writing about beer history well since well before Christina and I were born anyway. His blog, Zithophile, is one of the most popular beer, beer blogs in the world and keeps readers like us engaged with each new revelation about our favorite tipple and its convoluted history. We also know that Martin is working on a brand new book, or has just finished a brand new book, and we'll certainly talk about that as we go throughout our uh, conversation. So, welcome, Martin, and hello, Christina. <laughs> and just a friendly reminder to those listening or watching home that you can catch the Beer Ladies on all the different social media platforms. We are at Beer Ladies Pod on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and even on Mastodon. Sometimes on TikTok, we've been a bit lax there. I apologize, it's my fault. Um, but we'll we'll regular scheduling will be resumed soon enough. Okay, folks, so let's go around the houses now and talk about. What are we drinking tonight? Martin, as our guest, we'll go with you first. What are you drinking? Okay, well, I'm drinking uh, Adnam's Southwold Bitter. Adnam's, I'm currently living in a, a tiny little uh, coastal town called Cromer, which is in Norfolk. Uh, and Adnam's is around the coast in Southwold, probably about uh, 40 miles from here. So it's a perfectly suitable. It's always been one of my favourites. Absolutely classic. British bitter. Look at the colour of that gorgeous mm. dark amber colour. And I am drinking out of a um, a very old-fashioned style of pint beer glass now, known as the lantern beer glass, which is uh, ten ten-sided glass. I think these are really lovely. I think they really show up the colour uh, of the of the beer. I'm going to try and turn the light on here. Hang on. Yeah. Oh yes. Look at see. that. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, it's faceted. Yeah, it's faceted mm -hmm. because of the because of the sun. It's worked really well for, for displaying the colour of it. The dimple glass does the same thing. I don't mm. know people find the dimple terribly old-fashioned. I think that if you look at the colours in a dimple glass in a well-lit pub, 
know, the, the colours of the beer, particularly these amber coloured beers, it shows it up really well. Yeah. I actually like the handle on that glass that you've got. Instead yeah. of it just being kind of straight round, it's got like a little raise or a rise before it goes down. Yeah. I think that's easier for the fingers too. Yeah. Well, uh, well, the classic way of holding them is like that. You, you don't <laughs> have like that because as somebody once said, supposing the handle fell off, then you, you've lost your beer. So, <laughs> I actually so thought well, it was the yeah. other way around. And I thought that the reason that you'd hold it by the handle and not the glass was to not warm up the beer overly you know but that's probably a myth you know <laughs> i mean yes it does there is the danger of warming the beer up but uh I, I, it's it's the way that i feel comfortable holding it fair enough <laughs> all righty christina what have you got tonight i have brought the rye river uh brunch baltic breakfast porter and it's, it's the porter and there's a reason i brought that and we will explore that in a little bit um, specialty Canadian maple syrup, locally roasted coffee. Um, yeah, it sounds like a breakfast in a can. Mm. Um, I'm interested to see how the maple syrup works with the coffee and the porter flavors. So that's really mm. interesting. Quite quite a lot going on here. Mm. Um, yeah, sounds pretty cool. I've had that beer actually, and I really enjoyed it. I wasn't sure about it just because it did sound like it was going to be a lot on top of a lot, but actually I thought it was quite nice. Now I have got um, almost a diametric opposite. I've gone Timothy Taylor's landlord, <laughs> pale ale, the classic pale ale, you know? Um, so in, <laughs> in honor of Martin, I've, um, you know, besides the fact that we'll explore a little bit about Porter and the history of Porter and Stout, um, Martin, the, the way that I've known you and your work, I learned about your work through IPAs and, you know, the myth busting around IPAs and, and parallels. So I've in fact got a landlord parallel. I've also got a proper job IPA just in case we go into a second beer. So, you know, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> uh, I really hope that um, you have better luck with your um, Tim Taylor's landlord than I did. I took Am I allowed to mention a rival podcast here? Of course, John Holt uh, invited me when I, I visited New York a few years back, and John Hall invited me to appear on his podcast. And uh, as you probably know, he likes guests to bring along a couple of beers, and they taste them completely blind. And I thought, well, I'll take Tim Taylor's. And I also took a beer you may know. Um, it's from was what was then my local brewery in London, um, Twickenham. Fine ales, and they were a very lovely kind of cross between a a, a bitter and an American pale ale, which they call Naked Ladies, which is named after uh, a set of statues of of, of um, they're called Oceaniads. They're basically um, huge marble naked women on seahorses, and they're a local landmark, and everybody loves them. And they're known as the Naked Ladies, but of course. I'm afraid uh, the guys in New York couldn't handle his name at all. They thought it was appalling. But the worst problem, the problem was with the Tim Taylor's landlord because we took the top off the Tim Taylor's landlord and it was skunked. Oh, and I thought, no. I don't believe it. It was instantly, obviously skunked. And I oh, thought, how no. uh, uh, picked? I was in brown glass. How did it get skunked? I have no idea. So that was desperately embarrassing. <laughs> it's very hugely prestigious. <laughs> Not as prestigious as yours, obviously, but quite <laughs> prestigious. 
<laughs> and with a skunk to beer. But I mean, at least it was, you know, at least they were able to say, we recognise this as a skunk. So they were able to show that, yeah, they know what a skunk beer is. You know what, tell you what, at least it gets you a good story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm unfortunate for the beer. <laughs> Although, I mean, I, I've had Timothy Taylor in the bottle a few times before, but I've had it on cask as well, which I really enjoy when you can find a, a good cask. You don't, you don't get them here much. Um, yeah. It's a lovely, lovely beer. It really, mm. I think, it deserves its its uh, its rankings is probably one of certainly one of the top five. I would think uh, cask beers in Britain. It's absolutely superb beer, mm. and uh, I would certainly, as you say, the problem now is that it's so widely available that often you find it's not as well looked after as it should be. Mm. If you if you get it on form, it's cracking. Yeah, nothing quite like it. I, I got very excited visiting London. I think, I, I don't think I was there in the last year, but somewhere there. And one of the pubs I went to, no idea which it was, but they had a lot of the Timothy Taylors on cask. And I was like a kid in the candy store. And I was like, right, that's it. I'm sitting down at this pub and I'm going to have each and every one of them. And I'm going to make notes and I'm going to put them on untapped and I'm going to do all the beer nerdy things. But I had a lovely time. I really do enjoy it. But you don't see cask that much here in Ireland. Hey, Christina, not much at all. No, mm. you can get it at um, Weatherspoons, mm. and that's really one of the only places. Yeah, it does need people who know what they're doing, who know how to yes. craft it, got the experience in it. Um, you know, I I was uh, speaking at a conference in Virginia in October and while I was over, uh, I tried to sample as many uh, hand pump beers as I could find in various places. And no, most of the time, you know, and particularly I was trying um, what was styled as bitters. Mm. Again, mm. Just, just not quite getting it. <laughs> quite yeah. Getting it. I, I mean, there's definitely an art to it. And, and I think a lot of it is on the you know the, the pub itself and the and the cellar master or whoever looks after that beer and i'm still trying to learn a little bit about um hand pumps and casks myself but um it, it seems to me like you can't just take any old beer and you can't brew it as if you were going to store it in a keg and force carbonate it and store it for months on end you know there's really a whole there's a whole art form to it yeah i think one of the problems with uh lots of cask beers is that they all um handle differently so mm. Had the experience of handling something like landlord and know uh, how it, that's going to differ from you know, London Pride or you know Agnums or whatever, and to know that you you will need to leave one for several days maybe, but another one you can really tap straight away and and so on. And it's only you know an experienced seller man or woman uh, will be able to do that. Somebody that only deals with it occasionally and isn't really used to it, you know, they won't have that experience mm. and they won't be able to deliver that that prime uh, product. Indeed. It is, a, it is a bit of an art, that one. So, Martin, how did you get into uh, beer at all, let alone writing about beer? <laughs> uh, it was very, very strange because um, I was 14 years old and uh, in a pub garden with my father um, in uh, Kent, down in the southeast corner of, of England, and uh, he handed me this. It was a, I can remember it was a lovely sunny day. He handed me this pint of beer and said, "Try that, son. I think you'll like it." And I 
took a sip and I was just bowled over by the hoppiness and the flavours of everything else. And I thought, this stuff is great. <laughs> and uh, it was almost certainly, and, and sadly now vanished, a uh, brewery called Fremlins. And being down from, from Kent, they really do went for very hoppy beers then. And I'm sure that that's what, what it would have been. So I, uh, from a very young age, I discovered I liked beer. Um, but um, I, I'm a journalist by training and career. I tried to uh, stay away from having very much to do with writing about beer because I didn't really want to, to mix my uh, kind of professional life with my um, my pastimes, my enjoyment of beer outside work and outside writing about it. Uh, but then I knew I was a member of the campaign for Real Ale and I knew the guys that were putting together a, a, a beer guide a local beer guide in Hertfordshire, which is where I, I grew up and had my first job as a journalist. And they said, oh, we've got a few pages uh, blank at the, at the back of the guide. Could you write us something? And I said, well, what shall I write about? And they said, well, how about um, a history of brewing in, in the local area? And I said, oh, yeah, that should be easy to do, easy to research. And it turned out to be not that easy <laughs> to do. I found I enjoyed doing the research. Mm. I enjoyed um, finding out the stories about these breweries that had disappeared and what had happened to them and why it happened and so on. So that was that got me into uh, doing the, the beer history stuff. And it all kind of um, spread out from there. And then, then I discovered, um, as I got more into it, that I, I found that the thing about beer history, um, as Christina would know, is that it, it can be divided up into basically mostly uh, generally, business history and technological history, but there was very little about product history. Right. There really wasn't much talking about, you know, people would talk about the, the, uh, the growth of uh, Porter, I and mean, there's some fantastic business history written about the growth of Porter. Um, there's some fantastic, you know, technological history written about, about the, uh, the rise of the giant bats and all the rest of it. Nobody talk, really talked about how the product changed across the decades and across the centuries. Yeah. So I started um, finding myself getting more and more interested in, in tracking those sorts of developments, you know, how uh, and why um, IPA, which is very much a, a, a minority drink for expats, became a very popular drink for the middle classes in Britain. Um, how that then transformed itself because IPA was a very much a premium beer. Uh, so people started bringing out cheaper versions uh, and that was turned into bitter mm. ales. But at the same time, while you've got that going on, um, you've got Porter is now declining. Well, why did that happen? Well, well, how do these changes in taste take place? What influences them? What drives the changes? in the popularity of a particular product and why how and why does it it lose its popularity but it wasn't in britain it wasn't ipa that was replacing it it was mild ale so mm. ipas could carried on as a minority drink right the way through to the 1960s in britain um and in ireland of course it's something different again the, you know porter came in uh and very much stayed as 
Um, you know, the universal drink, porter and stouts, bitter, didn't really get in, mild, you can discover some references to mild ale in, in uh, Ireland, uh, but they tended to call it sweet ale, in, interestingly. Uh, and and uh, suddenly, in Britain and in Ireland, at all or less the same time, we finally uh, start doing what every other country has been doing for nearly 100 years, and drinking lager. Yes. How or why does that happen? Anyway, so uh, I find these, these kind of sociological um things going on in in the history of beer absolutely fascinating you know and, it, and it's not i keep trying to say this to people it's not really so much the beer as a, as the sociological implications the sociological changes that take place um, mm. and, and trying to work out what drives them um what's going on uh i don't uh, there don't appear to be too many answers one of them is is that it's it's very often not one individual changing their tastes, um, but a cohort thing. So you know, you'll find that as new drinkers come in, they're not drinking what their father drank, they're not drinking what their grandfather drank, they mm. want something new. Yeah. Uh, and very often you find that the rise in one drink and the fall in the other drink is almost exactly matching the cohort changes because every, every year, 2% of the drinkers die. <laughs> And then another 2% come in who are brand new drinkers standing there at the bar. They've just turned 18 or 21 or whatever your drinking age is. And so what you saw happening in Britain, for example, um, mild ale was hugely popular and some breweries were producing 90% of their product in the 1940s, 1950s was mild ale. And then it falls off a cliff at the mm. end of the night. And the reason for that is that all the Bardale drinkers are dying and all the young kids coming in, they're now, some of them are drinking bitter, more and more of them are drinking lager. Mm. I'm just, I'm sorry about that. I'm just like being, you know, you've got, no, you've got <laughs> 20 minutes of, of being gone. But that's kind of, so that's, that's uh, how my interest in beer history develops. Um, and how I got really into being more and more interested in the history of, of um, styles and tastes and mm -hmm. interested in all that kind of um, sociological stuff around taste and around um, changes in taste. That's, That's very cool. That's interesting as well, uh, you know, the business stuff and the technological stuff. Um, but what I try to do now is to make sure that there's at least as much focus on on the product, uh, which I think was missing for a very, very long time, um, as much as the other things that have traditionally been, you know, the kind of stuff that uh, mm. academics in particular have, have concentrated on. It is interesting how the, the trends will kind of, you know, come in and out of fashion, so to speak. And and it's and I think you nailed it there where, you know, you don't really drink what your parents drink. You know, you almost, mm -hmm. as an act of defiance, you will drink something else. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe you'll come around in your old age, but, you know, these things shift and change. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and the fascinating thing about that is um, that that implies, because it's happened with every other uh, type of drink, that lager will have its day one day, that that lager will stop being the dominant uh, type of beer. And what will replace it? I don't know. Um, mm. I think it may be a much more um, 
flavor oriented type of lager so we won't so um people people i think are now looking for flavor in their beer they've they've had it out of american ipas american pale ales and they're looking for that across the board in their beers and i think that's going to be i suspect that is going to be the thing um that will drive change in the beer industry um, mm. but if i if i could predict i'd be a very rich man i'm first so <laughs> I sort of made a half-hearted prediction somewhere at the beginning of the year or end of last year that we might see not so much the tastes for lager dipping, but the, the craft brewers sort of moving away from extremely hoppy or extremely, um, let's say, complex or flavorful, you know, all these like really big, heavy beers, only and not because people don't like them, but because ingredients are really expensive. And it's interesting to see how the economic factors will also potentially mm change brewers appetites for brewing specific beers and therefore shaping also the the market for what people are interested in i i, I think that a lot of people are enjoying lagers again but i wonder mm -hmm. what it is is going to be you know what's what is the next big style going to be that is not an overwhelming sort of sour pastry dessert stout ipa thing you know you know what's what's going to be the next simple style that's yeah. relatively cheap to manufacture yeah, and I would also say cheap to purchase because mm. that's the other thing. On the other side of it is we're, we're you know, we, we've all, like, we don't have the disposable income that we had. So, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I would like to hope that, um, you know, more um, kind of more less in-your-face beers are going mm. to be more popular again. The problem, I think, is that um, we're finding, even in, a, even in a country like Ireland, which, of course, where the pub has been solidly the place where you drank, there is much more drinking at home, and people like to have a big hit at home that you, you're not necessarily looking for in the pub. <laughs> so that's going to encourage brewers to, to give people that, that big hit. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I like a big hit occasionally. There's nothing wrong. I had a very lovely... Um, sour fruit beer yesterday from Poland and it was absolutely terrific and, it, and, and that was just the one beer I wanted all evening and that was fine and I was I remember um but as you know I'm still I still think there's a there is hopefully a big market for that lovely beer that's going to uh fuel the crack fuel the chat in the pub the mm. one that you chatting away and you're thinking that's a lovely point i'll have another one of those you know which which as far as i'm concerned um is very much the best sort of beer the one mm. that you just enjoy it's lubricating the social the social event that you're in yes. the middle of the, the sort of beer that you're not thinking too hard about you're just yeah. enjoying you know you don't have to overanalyze and and really yeah. wonder about intentions and star alignment and things about when you're drinking it if you sat back you know a beer like this if you sat back and started to analyze it you could get plenty out of it but you don't have to you can just enjoy it enjoy the moment and and you know unconsciously almost uh enjoy the, the depth of pleasure that's in there mm. yeah because you don't always want to play beer judge i know i yeah. don't <laughs> no me neither <laughs> um yeah no yeah. i mean again the story i, I now uh, repeat Incessantly, I was a, a beer judging. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, a few years back, we got down to two beers, and uh, one of them was an imperial stout, 
and the other was a Heller's. <laughs> and it, it, it was, you know, big, big, bigger contrast you couldn't imagine. This Heller's, it was from a uh, little brewery down in South Bavaria called ABK. It was the absolutely perfect Heller's. It was utterly faultless, clean, just superb, easy drinking, satisfying beer. And the the judges split almost equally between everybody who was saying, but this this it's got such great flavours in this imperial stout, and the others of us were saying, well, you know, to be honest, it's really not that difficult to brew a great imperial stout. You just dial everything up to eleven, and, and away you go, and let it rest for a year. <laughs> to brew perfect hellers like this is really really difficult. There is, mm -hmm. as you, I don't need to tell you this, you know this. There is nowhere to hide. In most sorts of lager, particularly in a Hellis, yeah. and it it deserved to win just for being such a cracking, faultless, perfect mm. beer. And, and hopefully, and luckily, we prevailed and we persuaded them that this this was the winner, and it and it won, and it deserved to. I don't it's know whether you you do get it now in the UK. You see, it's ABK Actium Brauerei Kaufberg, I think it stands for. If you see it, drink it. It's lovely, lovely, lovely. Beer. Duly noted. <laughs> so, people yeah. look out for it. Mm. Coming off the back of like how we decide beers and what beers we drink, I have a question about how do you decide what to write about? Because I am a big fan. I have been reading your beer history work um, since like I started even thinking about maybe being a beer historian in my early master's days back in the day and you write about such a wealth of information I mean you're just a font of knowledge how do you choose these topics do you I mean sometimes I know for myself I fall into them do you feel like a certain calling to them for the blog in particular um how do you pick these things it's just whatever comes up and, and interests me um you know, that's uh, very often it's just something comes along and I think, oh, that's, that's interesting, that's intriguing. I must dig more into this. Um, sometimes you find that uh, one writes something about a particular uh, area and it turns out that there's nothing available at all. I wanted to write about uh, history of brewing in India. To my astonishment, there's absolutely nothing at all, uh, and what there was 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 completely wrong about um, brewing under the British Raj in India, which is really quite a big thing. I mean, there were there were um, fifteen or twenty breweries in India in the nineteenth century, all run by uh, British expats, uh, mostly in a long line uh, of the foothills of the Himalayas. Because once you get up to about uh, six thousand feet, it's finally cold enough to be able to brew uh, in in somewhere like India. And it was a it was a fascinating story that no one had dug into. And so um, it was great to be able to ferret out uh, something that simply remained un uncovered previously. So that that I kind of fell into simply because. Um, it was something I wanted to mention, uh, actually, in, in the Porter book, uh, the fact that there were huge exports of Porter to India, far more than, than pale ale, because the British troops, uh, being working class, they were, they were drinking Porter. It was only the officers drank the, the 
pale ale. But there were also some uh, brewers that have been started in India to, to try to provide beer to the troops more cheaply rather than having to ship it out pre-Suez, 14,000 miles. <laughs> um, and I wanted to tell their story, but as I say, there wasn't anything there. As you know, the great thing now about doing any of that kind of research is how much stuff there has been scanned on the internet. So you can you can find thousands and thousands of newspapers um, from literally all over the world. You know, you you can sit in your in your uh, study or wherever and log into Hong Kong Library and read nineteenth-century British. Thing, newspapers in English in Hong Kong talking about advertising the beers that are on sale, talking about the attempts to start breweries in somewhere like Hong Kong, you know, which again nobody had nobody had ever written about. Mm. Um, so there is. It turns out that there is just a huge area out there that that partly because before the internet, it was almost impossible to research this stuff. You know, nobody's going to fly to. Shanghai and look up copies of the North China Times or whatever, uh, but it's all scanned on the internet now, mm. so you can do it just with a bit of sitting in your bedroom and and with a computer in front of you. It's, and you know, I I could not have done anything like the stuff I've done if it wasn't for the fact that we are now in the well, are we in the third uh, decade of the twenty first century, and there is just almost too much stuff out there to, to find and uh, drag out and and fill it and then put out in front of people. And yeah. I almost don't care if people read it or not, actually. I'm glad that they do, and I'm glad that people enjoy it. It's getting the story together in my own head and putting it down on paper is, is the thing that I enjoy. Yeah. I think that's so fun. And, and tell us then about... This upcoming book of yours, the one that's going to be released soon right. on Porter well, and Stout. Uh, yes. Uh, well, this sprang out of something um, I did for um, a project called um, The Geography of Beer. Um, and I had written about the fact that Porter was the, the world's first global beer. It was the first beer uh, to literally be sold around the world and brewed around the world. So uh, there were um, breweries on every continent and almost every country uh, making this dark black beer that had started out life, of course, as a, as a local beer for local people in London. Um, it was brewed with uh, hops from Kent and uh, brown malt from Hertfordshire, just to the north of London. And it was very specifically for the local working classes in London. And somehow it became a global phenomenon. So, so I wrote up, um, <laughs> I was asked to write uh, four or 5,000 words for this project. And I uh, ended up writing 23,000 words. I thought, oh, dear, that's too much. <laughs> uh, and managed to cut it uh, down sufficiently. And then uh, this American academic publisher contacted me and said, um, have you got any ideas for a book? And I said, oh, yeah, well, out of doing this preliminary research for this, this project, I think there is a story. Uh, and they said, fantastic. Uh, how long do you think it will be? And uh, how long will it take you to write it? And stupidly, I said, oh, <laughs> 80,000 words and, you know, six months, sorry, maybe. And uh, <laughs> that was when I found that there was just so much stuff. Um, and I actually got up and 
insanely. Um, I got up to 400,000 words and it took me five years. Um, and I, I've cut it back now to um, 300,000 words. And I went back to the publishers and I said, look, you know, what do you think? And they, so they read it and they said, okay, well, yeah, it's long, but we think so, yeah. <laughs> like it. I thought, I said, thank Christ, because I just couldn't stand. I hadn't cut, cut the thing by, you know, 25%. I just couldn't, I was actually going to have to pay. I thought I'm going to pay someone to cut more out of it because I just can't do it myself anymore. Um, so that has finally been done. Um, I have finally put all the pictures together for it and written all the picture captions and divided it up. So it's about, uh, it's, I think, nine uh, different sections um, covering the geography uh, and also things on like who were the porters, um, the, we talked about the technology, the technology, uh, te technological changes um, that happened through the through the decades and through the centuries and so on and so forth um, and hopefully it may be out at the end of this year i hope uh possibly the beginning of next year the, the problem is i fear it's going to be really quite expensive um, mm. but you know that's what you get with these big academic books unfortunately mm -hmm. and five years of your life yeah never again but, you know, hopefully, as I say, it will be, uh, it won't be the definitive book, actually. No, it will be, what I, what I want it to be is a book that will inspire people to then go off and do their own research, you know. Uh, so, for example, I have written about um, the history of Porter in South America, uh, which is fascinating in its, in its own right. Um, you know, and again, it's some really interesting kind of sociological uh, things going on there in the way that they uh, presented Porter in South American society. Um, you know, without giving too much away of what's in the book. Um, uh, what, what I hope will then happen is that somebody who uh, can actually speak Spanish and Portuguese, <laughs> I've been relying on uh, Google, Google Translate for all the stuff I've been doing, will now be able to do a much more thorough history of it based on the kind of framework I hope that I'm able to provide for them and uh, uh, indicating that there is plenty out there to start researching. So people will go away and expand on what I have done and produce something much more thorough in their own particular areas. So the idea is just to give people plenty of background and uh, encourage them to go away and do it themselves. I mean, it's the same. I, I, uh, I was embarrassed to be asked by uh, a Polish brewery at the beginning of this year. They said um, it's, it's Baltic Porter week again, uh, which I think is uh, the third week in January every year. And uh, we would like you to come and talk about Baltic Porter. And I said, well, no, I'm English. Why, why am I? No Polish person yet has done anything on the on the origins of Baltic Porter um, and why Baltic Porter exists in the first place. Um, and so I'm the only person to have done it. So I was flown out there and interviewed and talking in English, obviously, and uh, subtitles underneath. And I kept emphasizing, I said, what I'm hoping now is that you're listening to me talking about it. Off you all go. Mm. Search. 
Baltic water in all the records that are out there in Poland, who was doing it, what they were doing, how they were doing it. Ah, so hopefully that's what it will encourage them to do. Yeah. We, we, we've said often on this podcast that there's a million PhD theses, you know, that could be written on almost any topic that you can yeah. imagine about beer. There's there's just so much to still research and document and um, and discover and learn. It's fascinating. Well, and I think, and I want to ask this to you, Martin, um, I think in particular, I mean, there's lots of historians that bridge the gap between the general public and academia, but I think in particular, beer history has an appeal, an absolute appeal to a general audience that not all areas of academic study perhaps do. So how do we as beer historians bridge the gap between being, you know, academically accurate and, you know, disproving the myths and the misinformation while still providing things that are interesting to a general audience in a way that is interesting for them to read. And I think you do that well, um, but how do you, what is your thought process on that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's always difficult because um, I, think, I think it was Stephen Hawking uh, talked about how you, every, um, he was warned that every uh, equation he put into uh, his books made, made another 100,000 fewer sales that he would, would be making. And I think the same is true with footnotes. You, know, you can't give the, the, uh, the general public a book full of footnotes. They won't be interested in it. But um, for an academician, it's valueless without footnotes. Unless you are saying where, where those sources are, you know, how do I know you're not just making this stuff up? Uh, so <laughs> that is difficult. You know, the uh, the Porter book will be rammed full of full of footnotes. It will absolutely be chocolate with footnotes. Um, but but when I did uh, Amber Golden Black, which was the first book I did on, which is to my astonishment, the first book that anybody had written about the history of beer stars of any sort, um, there wasn't a single footnote in it because I just I wanted it to be a popular book that would be read by uh, by people um, who weren't academically minded and who would be probably put off by a host of footnotes. It's really tricky. I don't know. Mm. I don't know answer to that. Um, I think that I think that. Uh, the internet now gives us an opportunity to uh, to do the two things at once. If if we're lucky and if we play it right, that so you can have uh, the popular version and you can have the footnoted version at the same time. Um, I have just. Do I have it here? No, I don't think I do. Um, I've just done a thing on. I've just done the thing on the uh, history of brewing in India. Um, which is in the local, uh, the latest edition of the um, brewery, uh, brewery history, the Brewery History Society Journal, and that's all completely footnoted. I am going. I'm hoping to produce that uh, as a a short book uh, through Lulu or something like that. That won't have any footnotes in it at all. Mm. If you want the footnoted version, it's there. If they don't, and I think it probably will have quite a wide uh, appeal um to people generally particularly in india i noticed <laughs> i noticed i was ripped off and uh some, something i had written um earlier on on indian uh brewing history was popped up in the hindustani times with, <laughs> um, attributed and i thought hmm. 
this is going to be this stuff on India history is going to be the most ripped off thing I've ever done. I know that and I'm aware of it. On the other hand, if it gets people going out and doing their own subsequent research, that's fine. And I think that um, you know it almost doesn't matter if they're academic or they're non-academic if it encourages people to to research this stuff. Mm. That's you know my job is done. Mm. Uh, so, so basically, I've managed to avoid giving you an answer there because I don't know what the answer is. How how you uh, you satisfy the academics who quite rightly demand the evidence for the claims that you're making, but at the same time um, appeal to people who are interested, who do enjoy you know learning about the the history of what's in their class and what's in front of them, um, you know, who are interested in the fact that. For example, if you say uh, I'm going to produce an authentic um, historic porter, okay, which period of history do you are you going to be authentic to? You know, they mm -hmm. they are fascinated by the fact that you know authenticity <laughs> covers an enormous <laughs> range of things. You know, from the yes. early 19th century through to the early 20th century, they're all different, and people, dare I say, these ordinary drinkers do find that interesting. But they are they're going to just glaze over if you then yeah. hit them with all the footnotes that back up what you say. So mm -hmm. I don't I don't I don't know that there is any kind of perfect answer. Let's just try to do the two at once, if possible. Yeah. Mm. Like we, we could possibly now use the internet for. Although I do yeah. find it, I find it interesting now because you know there's on the one hand you can be writing a book that is almost the academic source for everything and it's you know very well categorized and listed and all but I like that um, certainly what you've done Martin and Christina you've done it but it's going to come in such a way that there's also blog posts that you can extract and almost focus a little bit more about the storytelling of some aspect in a very digestible short shorter form way that doesn't you know, have the feel of an academic book. I like that you could take the, the research that you've done and, you know, use it and share it in different ways for different audiences. That's appealing. Um, and for me, who's not super interested in all of the primary sources, I'd like to know that you're correct, but not so interested in where you got the info. But it's nice to be able to see the, the Spark Notes version sometimes, you know, of something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did, I did a thing uh, last year with... Um... And back in whatever the name is, Hob, Hob Day, uh, they have this great beer out. I don't know if you've uh, come across it, but uh, they're London port, uh, Porter. And uh, they said we'd like to do a whole series of um, just weekly um, things about the history of Porter, uh, which is no problem at all. Um, so, so we did, I put together 20 things that were. Uh, tweet worthy mm. and uh, then you could click through and there would be something slightly longer four or five bars expanding on the tweet <laughs> and that seemed to be really popular people really mm. enjoyed it it wasn't any kind of massive footnote big exercise it was just giving people you know little tidbits about the drink that they had in their in their hand you know they they'd see the tweet they'd flip the beer mat over or whatever yeah um, and it gave them something interesting to ponder as they're as they're having their beer. So, you know, that's I think that's an entirely valid and, and worthwhile thing to do. And mm. if one in a hundred of them then go on and buy the book with all the footnotes, well, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can kind of hedge your bets a bit. Like um, I know for 
the books that I'm writing, the academic and me, I need to, yeah, I just, so I'm not doing footnotes, but I'm doing in-text, like, you know, introducing the, the source and then having a bibliography at the end, which makes my little academic heart happy. Um, but then also providing the source, but maybe not, you know, the day it was published and who published it and, and all this stuff that's in the bibliography. So trying to hedge the bets, but it is difficult um, to kind of keep people entertained while still feeling like you're living up to some level of academic integrity. It is difficult. I'm finding it. I should say I'm finding it difficult <laughs> to navigate. Um, yeah. No footnotes. Um, but I equally, I completely agree with you because I think it just really overwhelms yeah. everybody. I, know, I have tried uh, in the past where possible to indi indicate, as you say, without being crushingly you know, uh, boring about where precisely where this fact comes from, to, to indicate uh, approximately where it's from so someone that's interested can then track it down if, if they mm. want to. Um, yeah. So it is do that but you do yeah as you say you can't just hammer them with with every kind of you know, little wrinkle about precisely where you got this this story from and so on yeah absolutely you know that said you, uh, you know terry pratchett one of my favorite authors sometimes on his pages the footnotes are longer than the words on the page <laughs> which is very funny but it's it's a very different genre of course <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh martin I, I wanted to know something oh sorry christina you first Oh, no, I was just going to ask, since we're talking about academic integrity and um, being honest and, you know, citing our sources, on the opposite end of that, I was going to ask you beer myths. Mm. How, 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 what are your maybe most annoying beer myths that seem to follow everybody around still that won't seem to go away? <laughs> oh, my goodness. My question is so related because what I wanted to ask you, Martin, and you can just ponder both, is what was the most controversial or kind of difficult to accept finding that you've published? You know, the thing that got people really riled up. Well, believe it or not, the thing that got people wound up um, was way back, uh, what is it, must be 15 or more years ago, 15, 18 years ago, when I first started saying um, that IPA was not invented by this guy, uh, George Hodson. And in the States, they were absolutely furious at this, because this has been the accepted story um, for you know, as long as as long as any of these people have been reading stuff from from whomsoever, every every single writer repeated this idea that George Hodgson had invented IPA, blah blah. And I turned up and said, no, he didn't. That's just not how it happened at all. It was much more complicated than that. And, so, and people got very very angry with me, um, and and much more angry than they did about the the whole uh, development of Porter thing. You know, they, they seem to to be quite okay when I said actually no Porter didn't develop with this one one lone hero um, inventing a way of saving everybody time blah blah no that's not how it happened and people said oh right okay well that's fascinating so so it was the <laughs> IPA the IPA one that really got people upset but but now everybody seems to have calmed down and they now uh, seem to be quite happy that you know the story of IPA was actually as all these things always are much more complicated and much more nuanced and although we all love the idea of the lone hero um no it didn't happen like that <laughs> so so that was the one that was the one that got people most upset um but I keep trying to say to people, I never set out to be a myth buster. I set out actually 
to find the, the exact details of how these things happen. I, I was brought up with the idea that uh, Ralph Harwood invented Porter uh, to uh, save people mixing this beer called Three Threads. And, I, and uh, this happened in uh, 1722 and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, that's fa fascinating. Let's, let's go back to the sources. Now we can now look at the newspapers. Let's read all the old things and find out exactly how this happened and what people were saying about it. And of course, there wasn't anything to back this up whatsoever. And the more I dug into it, the more the whole story just fell apart. That's, that it was clear that it hadn't happened that way. So I didn't set out to, to smash the myth. I set out to bolster the, the story, to, to get corroboration for the story, to um, get evidence to back the story up. And when I found that the evidence didn't back the story up, I then thought, oh, dear. <laughs> New <Whoops>. rabbit hole. <laughs> Let's, let's try to, uh, to pull together what really happened, you know, and that that in itself, um, you know, is absolutely fascinating because it's a, because it brings together so many different uh, factors in in in, uh, in politics, economics, uh, you know, social forces, business business forces, and so on and so forth. That all came together uh, and serendipitously invented this new style of beer nobody was nobody set out to develop a new style of beer it just happened from what they were doing in reaction to other forces they were trying to make their beer more cheaply they were uh, trying to uh, react to the rise in taxes that was going on um, and Using cheaper ingredients, but the cheaper ingredients being wood, wood smoke malt, meant that they had to then store this stuff longer. They were lowering the uh, strength of the beer. Well, that meant that they had to use more hops, and using a hoppier beer stored for a long time. They didn't know what was going to happen, but the miracle that happened was that uh, the souring elements that would normally affect a beer. Uh, Pediococcus and lactobacillus and so on were kept at bay by the increased hop usage, which was solely to keep the beer stable because it was now weaker. Mm. And the age, which was solely so that the smoking flavour of the wood, cheap wood malts that they were using would dissipate, combined to produce this fantastic new beer, which they weren't looking to do at all. And, I, and that's a much, much better story, I think, than, than putting together beers uh, to taste like another beer, <laughs> Three mm. Threads. And Three Threads itself, actually, the Three Threads existed. But that's another fascinating story. That was a tax fiddle. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm mansplaining here and telling you stuff that you know already. But Three Threads it, it itself is a great story because that was a tax fiddle. Um, because they didn't have the way of measuring uh, strength of beer, extra strong beer and strong beer paid the same tax. Huh. If you mixed extra strong beer and weak beer, then you ended up with something that you now had two barrels of strong beer, but you paid less, less tax combined than mm. you would do if you'd actually produced those two barrels of strong beer in the first place as you know, ordinary strong beer. So, 
yes, three threads existed. Yes, it's a great story in its own right because of, because of you know again this reaction to uh, outside forces on the brewing industry. You know the influence of tax <laughs> and legislation on the beers that we drink uh, and the way that beers have developed. Again, it's absolutely fascinating story, mm. uh, which. Uh, sort of been looked at but not as much I don't think as it as it probably should have been people didn't really um investigate they I mean even um some of the the great uh business histories um accepted too easily some of the myths that there were about the the, the reason why things like Porter developed <laughs> uh, so that's the kind of stuff that there have been plenty of other people. There's a, guy, a great guy called Ray Anderson, who uh, is a practical brewer um, and a historian. And when you read his stuff, as he, he was the person that educated me on precisely how uh, Porter came about, as, as, as I say, as, as a reaction to brewers trying to keep the beer affordable and the cost down. Mm. And uh, serendipitously, producing this entirely new and fabulous style of beer. Um, that's so cool. I didn't know actually about Three Threads. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. Didn't know that. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. That's awesome. Um, well, it's all in the new book. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, well, we'll see it there at the end of the year or early into the new year. But... Oh, I, mean, this is, this is, um, I, I couldn't resist putting down um, an entire uh, 6,000 word chapter because what happened was that uh, in 17, no, sorry, 1802, um, a journalist called John Felton um, wrote a story about uh, the so-called uh, so origins of Porter and he was the guy that put together this story of, about it supposedly being um, a, an attempt, the invention of Porter being an attempt to um, reproduce the taste of this beer called Three Threads, but he got Three Threads completely wrong. <laughs> um, he didn't, he um, didn't understand that uh, it was a tax fiddle, and he thought it was because people liked uh, ale, beer, and he said Tupany. Well, Tupany was ale, uh, and all pulled from three different casks, uh, and this was a bit of a faff for the poor old landlord, and so uh, this, so according to, according to Felton, John Harwood, uh, John Harwood, um, Robert Harwood, uh, Harwood invented Porter to supposedly uh, replicate the, the flavour of this mixed beer. Completely wrong, completely garbled, completely misunderstanding what was happening, but this story then became uh, it was plagiarised, I think, within months. There were 10 other publications repeated this story because in the 19th century, 18th century, they just didn't care. They, they plagiarised <laughs> now, But even then, you know, regularly. Um, and it rapidly became the accepted story about the origin of supporter and, and uh, lasted all the way through, was repeated everywhere. Uh, very, and I, tra I tracked... It was great fun doing this. I because you can now do it on the internet. Um, I tracked the different versions of this story and how 
was repeated, you know, and you'll find that somebody would, would uh, print a version in a paper in uh, Ireland in 1840, and then there'll be another small outburst of people plagiarizing that and repeating it and so on. And so this, this story became the accepted history of the origins of Porter and was repeated uh, by everybody, every single book that you will read <laughs> through to the beginning of the 21st century says that Porter was invented uh, to replace three threads. And it wasn't, <laughs> I don't know, I'm going to sort of you know, blow my own trumpet. <laughs> it wasn't until I came along and said, okay, well, where's the actual evidence for it? Uh, there <laughs> isn't any. It didn't <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, but it, the, the story of of how the fake story got about and how it spread everywhere, and, and it was translated into German and it was translated into Polish, you know, and, uh, and all the rest of it, is, is in itself really quite fascinating. So I've got mm. a whole uh, appendix <laughs> listing the way the story um, developed and uh, people misinterpreted things and got dates wrong and uh, misunderstood and so on. And it's, it's actually a, 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 a interesting, even though it's totally wrong, <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> to follow this, this uh, complete myth and how it, <laughs> it, it repeated itself and, and uh, became accepted as the, the, the definitive story. I mean, you're absolutely speaking Christina's language because there is a, <laughs> there is a bugbear on this podcast and it was our very first episode. So um, for those listening at home, if you haven't listened to the whole back catalogue, you've got lots to catch up on. But our very first episode was about um, the myth of how um, witches were the original brewers and all the witch mythology, hats and pots yeah, and, and all the things. And Christina's written about this as well. And it's just... It's just, it's one of those things where the myth is more interesting than the real story, but it just really took over. And so many publications on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, we, um, we have a saying in journalism, uh, which we laugh at, but it's semi-true. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, the, story, the, the stories are great, but... but um, I was having an argument with somebody on 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 Twitter. Stupidly, I know. <laughs> uh, and he said, "And um, oh, it was the the other the, the other great bit, of course, is the uh, guys sitting in um, beer soaked leather trousers to test whether or oh, not the beer yep, the, yes, the L Connors. It doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. You know, mm. if you want to test if a beer's any good, you drink it. You yeah. don't ruin." The guy's bench and your own trousers by sitting in a puddle, wet puddle, yeah. or whatever. Why would you do this? And, uh, <laughs> but he repeated this, and uh, I said, well, "I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not true. There's no evidence for it, and it doesn't make sense." And he said, "Yeah, but isn't it? Just, you know, shouldn't we be repeating it because it's a great story?" No, no. <laughs> Don't do that. The, the, the truth is interesting story. enough, <laughs> you know, really. Yeah. Although now there is something, Martin, I, I need you to help clear this up for me because I've asked um, I've asked Christina a number of times and I've asked Lisa, our other podcast host, and I've tried to research it, but I think that you're the guy to ask. So I know that the definitions of ale and beer changed over time. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so now, now I, I think what I'm asking is that, you know, initially ales were unhopped, beers were hopped, 
and then in, and then ales had some hops but not as well hopped as beers but when and why did we change the definition and when did ale become like a family of beer and lager is the opposite family of beer how did that happen i think it's uh because nobody ever stepped back and and kind of looked at the overview of the way that the meanings were changing um so you'll find uh yeah there are there are i think five or six different definitions of ale through the ages and they tend to overlap and they tend to be used uh sometimes at the same time in the same era you'll get people using ale in a different sense to the way that somebody else is using ale um and in fact and, and again i found it fascinating when i started uh, digging into this stuff there had there had been a consensus among historians uh that ale, which of course was was the original uh, unhalt drink and cognate uh, with earl and so on, and all those kind of Scandinavian and Baltic words, um, and even in old Russian, apparently, the, uh, before pivo, the Slavonic languages used used a version of, of the ale word, um, and then again uh, the Germanic. Uh, strictly Germanic, uh, so German and, and, and Dutch, low German, uh, had beer for reasons which we're really not certain about. Nobody's worked this out. And, and interestingly, when uh, hops started being used, they didn't change, change the name of, of the drink. They, they carried on calling it beer, even though it was now different from the drink that had been added previously been because it now had hops in it uh french of course as you probably know french kept servoir which was uh as meaning unhopped ale and bière uh as for the hop drink uh, we attempted to do that in britain um so for through really until um the start of the 18th century if you talked about ale you pretty much meant an unhopped drink mm. By then, um, the ale brewers, who were separate from the beer brewers, um, because the technology was different, you need, you didn't, you didn't need. This is a thing that it took me. You know, this is one of those light bulb moments, and I suddenly realised how thing about ale, unhopped ale, is that you never needed to brew to boil your wort. It was mm. not to boil the wort. Um, and as you probably know, in, in um, some Scandinavian, Norwegian brewing traditions, where they don't use hops, they don't boil the wort. Yeah. Raw ale is what it's all about. And raw ale was exactly what was going on. So it was a, you know, it was, it was a technological difference between a, an ale brewer and a beer brewer in Britain was that one boiled the wort and the other one didn't. And, uh, but gradually, of course, the, the ale brewers started uh, realizing that actually there was quite a big economic advantage in using hops. So they started putting a small amounts of hops in from probably the 1650s, um, but still, uh, well, a guy called William Ellis was writing about beer. He was the guy that did the London and Country Brewer. Um, he was still saying that you can't put too many hops in ale because it stops being ale, right? that, you know, if, you, if you use too many. 
then the whole thing starts getting very murky because of course pale ales started being uh shipped abroad but to ship it abroad you need to put more hops in it so you never got mm. pale ale that are quite well hopped so so pale ales for overseas consumption was hoppy pale ale for home consumption remained unhoppy uh, mm. and those pale ales that seem to be I mean, I've got no definite, definitive proof of this, but they, but it seems to be those pale ales that were the ancestors, those unhot, those hot, lowly, lightly hot pale ales, were the ancestors of mild ales uh, in in Britain. Um, wow. So uh, at the same time, you now have a problem in in that once. Poppy pale ales started coming back into Britain from from abroad. You've got two two beers that seem to be the same name, but are very different from each other. So that's when mm. the customer starts calling this these hoppy pale ales bitter. The brewers don't, mm. and carried on calling them pale ales, even though they were not the same as the pale mild ales. That they were also selling, and that's why uh, bottled bitters were called pale ales because the brewer was putting the name on the bottle. But in the pub, those ex exactly the same beers were called bitter because that's what the customer was asking for. Huh. Uh, right. So anyway, meantime, <coughs> so uh, we've now by the by the middle of the. Um, of the 19th century we now have ale pretty much meaning uh mild mild beer and uh beer meant porter and stout so that was the difference in the 19th century so it's entirely different in the states where beer meant lager so you mm. see in the 19th century in the states people talk about beer and ale and what they mean is lager and and Porter, the ale was the porters and the and the, and the bitters and the Burton ales and things like that. But if they talk about beer, they meant lager in the states. <laughs> Confused? Yes, we certainly are. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you then get another slow change, and uh, by because because beer now meant uh, in Britain, beer now meant um, porter. You now get a change so that by the start of the 20th century, ale meant a pale beer and beer meant dark beer. Then, then people just start ignoring all that. And so really by certainly the end of the 1920s, start of the 1920s, ale and beer mean in Britain mean the same thing. But of course, we didn't have lager at that time. Mm. Uh, nobody drank lager. Um, and it's not really, I mean, even in the 1960s, uh, start of the 1960s, lager was down to, lager was only about 2% of sales in Britain, and probably much the same, I would guess, in Ireland, I don't know, I'm guessing. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that's a brief, a very brief history, I, and not too mm. confusing, of how uh, ale has constantly changed its meaning over the past, uh, certainly from the, uh, the 17th century 
uh, when ales stopped ales stopped being totally unhot and started having some hops put in them. It's it's changed its its meaning through through time. But even I mean even in the nineteen fifties you will find um, in somewhere like London if you went into a pub and you said give me a pint of ale you'd be handed a pint of mild and mm. if you wanted bitter then you'd ask for a pint of bitter and it'd be handed a pint of bitter. So uh, that was that was still a difference theoretically between ale and bitter. Ale yeah. And so uh, I hope that's answered your question. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, one of the things when I moved um, to Ireland was that I saw in some of the older pubs um, signs for um, porters. Sometimes you get porters, lagers, beers, or sometimes you'd get ales, lagers, beers. Sometimes you'd see ales, beers. And the way that I'd always just known beer was that Ale and lager are the families of beer. It's based on the yeast. It's based on the fermentation profile. And, and all of them are beer. <laughs> so it was just like so fascinating to me that people have different names for things. What they, well, what they would have meant by ale and beer would, would be uh, pale ales and stouts and porters. Yeah. And porters and beer. Yeah. So, uh, beers because they were heavily hot. Mm. You know, the difference for a long time was that ale was lightly hot, beer was heavily hot. Mm. And so, therefore, porter fell in the beer family because it was heavily hot. It was heavily hot, yeah. So interesting. I actually I like the linguistic shift of all of these terms over time. Um, and if you're not already writing a book of the timeline of all of these things, that would be really cool. Except <laughs> uh, that it's irritating to have to keep um, exploring explaining to people that the terminology changed and uh, what mm. I'm talking about ale here or whatever. Uh, and, it, and one of the really irritating things is that um, it's it's the tradition in archaeology for them always to talk about beer, even though they're not talking about beer. Uh, they're yeah. About right. Yeah, and it gets really confusing. It's far too late to get them to change. <laughs> no. But yeah, it's the same thing with his, some historians. They'll be talking about beer and it's in the medieval period and you're like, in Ireland? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Ale at best. <laughs> That's so fun. <laughs> well, Martin, listen, let's not keep you up all night here. But Christina, do you have any final questions before we before we wrap it up? I guess my last question would be, what would be your advice to someone who wants to get into beer history? Mm. Yeah, uh, find out what your local brewery was and dig out as much of it as you possibly can. Uh, because there will, it's, it's very likely that nobody has really dug into it. And there is now going to be a hell of a lot there to dig into, particularly with with newspapers and so on. I've just done a uh, a job. I don't even seen it. Uh, there's, a, there's a company called Lucky Lager who do a, a uh, alcohol free lager, and they just take it over a pub in uh, central London, um, just north of Oxford Street, and they change it. Uh, they, they, so they they use it to promote their beer. And uh, they asked me to, to research the history of this pub. Uh, so it's a absolutely typical <laughs> um, street corner 
city centre boozer. It's and and you would think it would have no real history behind it at all. And yet, once you start digging into this place, it it uh, started in the 1790s. It has some all sorts of fascinating stories attached to it, and as does every other pub, I'm sure. Any, any other pub over about 150 years old, and most of them are, they have fascinating stories, and it's all, it's all researchable now because of the resources there are on the net. And the same is true of so many little breweries that there is so much stuff to, dis to discover there uh, that um, would have taken years to plough through newspapers in the past. You could now do it so easily. It's just unbelievable. So it's never, there's never been a better time to, to uh, just get into things like beer history. And uh, again, you know, there's so much family history out there now, so uh, uh, available. So many people have done great things like, you know, uh, recording um, old graveyards, old cemeteries going through and, and writing down all the, all, all the names and dates and so on. If you want to start doing this stuff, you'll find really quite quickly that there's an awful lot that you can, you can gather in and the Brewery History Journal will love to see your findings. <laughs> That's so cool. Great advice. I, li I like the idea of starting small and starting local um, instead yeah. of being overwhelmed with some big question about the history of of beer that i think that's a great, great piece of advice thousands and thousands of breweries out there once upon a time and uh very very few of them have had any kind of real in-depth uh research done on them and there are still like quite likely to be buildings around there's certainly going to be uh pubs that those breweries owned that are still in existence and there's going to be a considerable amount of information now available to, to be found on them so mm. away you go well thank you martin thank you so much for joining us we really really appreciate your your company and your insight uh, today tonight whenever the listeners at home will uh, be hearing or watching this but it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about beer, which, as you notice, is something I thoroughly enjoy doing. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> any time we can we can do a, a round two once your once your Porter and Start book comes out, end of the year, beginning of next year. We'll see. We'll we'll uh, we'll tweet it out when um when when we see the news, and that'll be lovely. We'll definitely pick it up. I should be blowing my trumpet very loudly. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we'll keep a lookout for it. And uh, yeah, friends at home, uh, thank you so much for listening to the Beer Ladies podcast. We really appreciate you joining us every week, especially when we've got wonderful guests like Martin on. And uh, yeah, catch us on the socials, wherever you want to find us. We're on every single social media platform at Beer Ladies Pod or at Beer Ladies Podcast. You can even buy merch or buy us a pint. We always appreciate it. So Thank you very much. And uh, good night, Christina. Good night, Martin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 